Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. In January of 1964, residents of Woodbine, Georgia, got exciting news. Their small community had welcomed a cutting-edge outfit called Fiacol Chemical Corporation to the neighborhood that promised to bring steady, full-time work to potentially hundreds of people in the region. The plan was to build powerful space shuttle boosters. The day officials flipped the switch to power the plant, Governor Carl Sanders declared it was a, quote, milestone in what I visualize as the beginning of the space age industry in Georgia, end quote. It wouldn't end up being that at all, but it did bring reliable work to women like Hattie Fogel and promised to lift not just her, but her entire family out of poverty. It created a close-knit family of employees who not just worked together and met at the local diner for lunch, but who attended each other's birthday parties and weddings. All of this was enough to make the company beloved in the eyes of most. Until seven years after the groundbreaking, when a pretty common sight in one of Thiokol's buildings, an open flame, caused an explosion that killed 29 workers, launched 17 years of lawsuits, and played a role in two separate generation-defining tragedies. The opening of the Thiokol plant in 1964 was a huge deal, in part because the space race was a huge deal and the plant was angling to get in on that. If you're unfamiliar, a quick Cliff's Notes-style synopsis. The Russians launched the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, in October 1957, which freaked out the Eisenhower administration. The thinking was, oh shit, they're ahead of us technologically, and the next thing you know, they're going to be ruling this planet, and maybe even others. Sputnik orbited the Earth and transmitted radio signals for three weeks before burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. The next month, the Soviets launched Sputnik 2 with a very unlucky dog aboard, a strain named Leica who orbited the Earth three or four times before overheating and dying, the poor thing. The next spring, the Soviets went for round three, followed the next year by a space probe sent to photograph the dark side of the moon. America created NASA in October of 1958 and a few months later took control of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory operated by the California Institute of Technology, which is only pertinent here because the fuel type embraced early on by NASA informed how all the plants hoping to work with NASA built their facilities. Anyway, America made public its plans to put the first men on the moon, and the race to pull this off was why it was such a big deal when a company like Thiokol set up shop in a new community. 
But there was even more to be excited about in Woodbine specifically, because at the time, the biggest employer in the area was a paper company, and good jobs were scarce. Plus, most of the population there at the time was African-American. This is Nancy Guan, a reporter with the Savannah Morning News who recently dug into Thiokol for her own podcast called Tripwire. We'll elaborate on that a bit later. First, here's a snippet of Tripwire's second episode. The space race is what brought Thiokol to Woodbine. Originally founded in 1929 as a company that produced synthetic rubber and other materials, Thiokol would eventually move into the aeronautics industry. Scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, discovered the company's polymers would make ideal binders for solid fuel rockets, essentially the glue to hold the rocket together. These solid fuel rockets would then be used to propel, you guessed it, a space shuttle right up into the Earth's orbit and beyond. To win the NASA contract to be able to make the rocket boosters, Thiokol had to build and test out its product. Woodbine seemed ideal because it had acres of land available on the cheap. They think this is the perfect place because there's tons of rural land, there's open space. They need a lot of space to build this huge rocket booster that would eventually launch a shuttle into space. On February 27, 1965, residents miles away from that acreage heard a thunderous clap coming from the site. Thiokol had tested the largest rocket booster known to humankind, and successfully, the whole town seemed abuzz with pride. Woodbine had not only been the site of a 13-foot diameter motor generating 3.2 million pounds of thrust, but it had done so by twice the power generated by any previous motor. One headline in the Make and Press read, Big Rocket Roars in Static Test. But the subsequent headlines weren't what Woodbine or Thiokol officials had hoped. Thiokol loses booster contract, read one in June 1965, atop an Associated Press story. That's because budgetary constraints prompted NASA to switch from its solid fuel program to liquid propellant, which mucked up Thiokol's plans. The plant itself wasn't abandoned, but rather rejiggered, so that its sprawling acreage could produce other, less headline-grabbing products. They find different industries and different materials to produce there, like pesticides and things like that. So whatever their chemicals can produce, they started moving into those arenas. A few years later, when America planted its flag on the moon in 1969, Thiokol was heavily invested in a completely different industry. Eventually, they start moving into war munitions. That's because the war in Vietnam was underway, and the U.S. had been sending troops since 1965. It's dawn, and Alpha-219 is commuting to war. 21 GIs bound for a jungle clearing a mile from the Cambodian border. Our involvement had been the subject of protests on college campuses for years, with riots drawing national attention at both the universities of Chicago and Wisconsin. Four men destroyed UW-Madison's Sterling Hall to protest the school's research connections with the U.S. military in August of 1970, and soon after that, letters to the editor and newspapers nationwide showed that distaste for the war 
went far beyond kids in college. Still, the war had created supply needs, and those created jobs. Thousands of previously fine-to-good companies suddenly found themselves in unprecedented demand and winning contracts with the federal government because they could make products useful to American troops. Biocall was one of them. They specifically made a type of trip flare called the M94. And a trip flare is, it's more of like a defensive device, not a, a weapon. Though Thiokol also did make other types of weapons like mortar rounds and stuff like that for the Vietnam War as well. But for the trip flare, they made this particular type called the M94. And it's this kind of handheld grenade sized device and there's a wire connected to it. You string that wire around your army base. Whoever trips over it, it triggers the trip flare and it lights up and you can see whoever tripped it. Now, as mentioned, this plant wasn't just some factory building in Woodbine. It was spread over thousands of acres and had about three dozen buildings, each of which housed workers making different types of stuff. The building in which these trip flares were made was called Building M132, which was connected by covered rampways to two other buildings. The three units together created a complex. M-132 was erected in 1964, when Thiokol still planned to make rocket boosters. It was about 37 feet wide by 135 feet long. Three of the four outside walls were thick concrete block, while the fourth wall was weaker. If there was a fire, that weaker wall was supposed to give way and serve as gas relief so the interior wouldn't become one big pressure cooker. There were some additions made when Thiokol abandoned the space race for the war, but we don't need to get too into the weeds on that. Long story short, by the early 70s, the manufacture of trip flares mainly took place in this M132 building. This is where they would make ignition and illuminant pellets and load candles for the flares. The main chemicals used in these processes were ground sodium nitrate, magnesium powder, and a binder consolidator. I'm sure there's somebody listening right now who knows precisely what these chemicals are and what they do, and they reflexively have their hands raised so teacher can call on them to explain. But my brain hurts just from learning the pronunciation of this stuff, so I'll keep things simple. Here's part of a trial document Nancy Guan provided me that sums up the most important thing to know about these materials. Quote, the loose materials burn at a speed measured in milliseconds. End quote. They not only burn fast, but they caught fire on the regular. These women, when they're assembling these trip flares, they run into fires like all the time. They're having to put them out frequently because they're working with magnesium and other chemicals. But they thought that was normal. You might have noticed she said women. That's because Thiokol had advertised for mostly women workers, supposedly because we women have daintier fingers better suited to maneuver the intricate pieces required to build these trip wires. That said, Guan's reporting suggests there might have been another reason for the female-focused recruiting. Kind of the unspoken thing was that other people bring up is that, you know, there was also the factor of wages. They could pay women lower wages. And at the time, a lot of the men were being drafted to the war. So it's kind of a confluence of all of that. Even if the cheaper wages had been front and center of the job postings at the time, though, few would have balked. 
The Civil Rights Act had passed in 1964, prohibiting discrimination in hiring and beyond, based on religion, race, sex, national origin, and such. But even so, it was tough for women to get steady work anywhere, and tougher still for Black women. Hattie Fogel was a 19-year-old Black woman who was thrilled to see the opening at Thiokol. She told The Current, a nonprofit news outlet covering coastal Georgia, that she and others in her family had been traveling to Brunswick, nearly 30 miles away, for piecemeal work at King Shrimp. Quote, was an opportunity for women to do better. I could go to work, come home, and provide for my child. There were times when we went to the shrimp factory, and if the shrimps weren't there in my department, I went home early. So there was not a guaranteed 40-hour paycheck, end quote. They had viewed that work as an opportunity for growth, to bring themselves and their families out of poverty. By 1971, the minimum wage in Georgia was $1.60 an hour, but Thiokol surpassed that and guaranteed full-time work to boot. For women like Hattie, this was a chance to completely redefine her whole family's existence. It seemed like a godsend, until suddenly it was clear that it was anything but... The workers at Thiokol were a generally happy bunch. It was such a close-knitted family, and you, you knew a lot of them. That was Elvinia Smith-Banks, a former plant worker, talking to WJXT Channel 4. By calling workers a close-knit family, she doesn't just mean company picnics and outings, though there was plenty of that for sure, as well as gathering at the nearby diner, the Crooked River Inn, for lunch together. But in a lot of cases, people were working alongside their literal family members. As The Current reported, quote, Fogel went to work each day along with her brother, sister-in-law, and two cousins. Each worked on the factory line where workers transformed raw explosive material into the deadly munitions that U.S. infantrymen would use to defend their own lives. Fogel's specialty was putting the safety pins in the trip flares, a job that required using an air gun with a foot pump to insert the pin. One day, that air gun malfunctioned. The trip flare blew up in my hand and they had to catch me, she said. End quote. The workers had been told to stay calm if they ever heard someone yell fire or if they saw a spark. But Fogel didn't have much control over her response to the thing literally igniting in her hand. She simply started to run. But while this was Fogel's closest explosive encounter on the job site, it was far from her only. Small fires were common. While the workers didn't get much safety training, they did get a lot of practice running. It was that cycle that Guan described earlier. The women would run out. Some men with extinguishers would run in, and the line workers would wait just outside the building until they were waved back in with a promise that all again was safe. It seemed an understandable cycle to the workers because they knew they were handling flammable materials. At least that's what they had been told, but that wasn't quite right. It turns out the federal government learned that the materials these women were handling were far more volatile than they knew. They find out they need to reclassify this trip flare material as a C7 explosive, whereas before they had classified it as a C2 flammable. The official notice kind of gets lost in all of this government bureaucracy. 
This is why there are sometimes systems put in place after these kinds of tragedies. If you're in a job that requires you to do X, Y, and Z regarding something related to worker safety and you're like, oh man, this is stupid and a waste of time, try to remember that whatever is being asked of you likely was enacted because someone didn't do it that way once upon a time and people ended up hurt. Or worse. In this case, a memo changing the status of the materials handled in building M-132 reached a guy who put it in a drawer rather than passing it along to the thiacol plant. We can't know for sure if thiacol would have changed how it approached those chemicals once they learned of the recategorization, but Guan said there's reason to think it would have. I was reading one of the old Uh, Florida Times Union articles, and they were talking about when they were building the plant for the rocket fuel booster construction at the time. And that stuff was highly explosive. And they had described having these kind of exit holes in the building where workers can just like go down and exit really quickly away from the building. In other words, They definitely would have handled and stored these materials differently. I think there would have been, you know, differences in the emergency system, maybe in the building. Instead, everything was the same as it had always been on the morning of February 3rd, 1971. Workers arrived for the shift with... No idea how dangerous these chemicals were because the company didn't tell them. Emma Gibbs was one of those workers. She'd been hired in October of 1969, so about 16 months earlier. She'd worked in building M132 up until about the week prior. I was transferred to a bunker. Yeah, about two blocks down from 132. That's Gibbs speaking to a reporter with The Current a few years ago. She explained that things seemed normal in her building on February 3rd, until, all of a sudden... The lights went out, and some of the women were sitting on those little round stools, and we had a boom and knocked some of them off the stool. Gibbs had seen enough close calls while working in M132 that she instinctively knew that that's from where the giant boom had come. What had happened inside that building had started off like so many minor panics before, Workers spotted a small flame. The women hustled outside while a few men rushed by with extinguishers. No one was worried, not at first. That's why the women didn't bother to take shelter outside the building, which soon violently exploded. When the fire hit the explosive materials inside, it turned the building into an outright bomb, resulting in a blast that caused many of the women to be torn apart while standing casually outside waiting for the all-clear. Meanwhile, workers in the remaining buildings had no idea anything was amiss until the blast shook the earth beneath them. The explosion shot chunks of M132 nearly a mile away. It also leveled a separate building about 50 feet from M132 and damaged nine others, Woods surrounding the area were leveled, and one worker described the roadbed as a sea of hot, bubbly tar. That worker, Lydia Cobbs, who'd been severely burned and stabbed by a flying piece of metal, also saw parts of her co-workers' bodies hanging in trees hundreds of feet away. One was blown with such force into a metal fence that he melted into it. 
And I ran to the door and I looked down there and all you could see is smoke and boom, boom, boom. Like a lot of the women working around her, Gibbs had family members back in M-132, but she knew it wasn't safe to try to help them. Not yet, anyway. Others reacted differently. They was going to go down there because they had relatives down there. And I'm fighting with them, trying to keep them from going down there. After a few minutes of shell shock, trucks, cars, and rescue vehicles began rushing to the scene to help the injured. Gibbs spotted a supervisor with victims in his car who told her that he was headed to the emergency room, so Gibbs went with him. She saw one woman sitting, her face blank with shock, one of her arms blown clean off. She went back and forth from the plant to the hospital, at turns trying to help transport the injured, while also searching for her sister, niece, and cousins. And I walked up on the back porch, and the first lady I saw was Annie Mae James. That's Annie Mae James. She was already dead. They had them laying out, and they had covered her all the way up. They were laid out on that back porch. The Associated Press reported, quote, A makeshift morgue was set up in the lunchroom of the women employees' locker building. The tables were moved out in a drizzling rain, and 16 bodies in blood-soaked wrappings were laid side by side in the lunchroom. End quote. Back at the hospital, Gibbs spotted her sister and niece being treated in an examining room. After checking on them for a bit, she drove to the house of co-worker Cheryl Sullivan's mother. And she kept asking me, where was Cheryl? Where was Cheryl? I said, I don't know. I hadn't seen her. Cheryl was just 21 years old with high cheekbones, a contagious smile, and natural hair. Later, Gibbs would learn that while Cheryl had survived the blast long enough to be transported to a hospital, she died en route. She was one of 29 victims that day, ranging in age from 20 to 50. The majority were Black women. Dozens more suffered injuries, some of them life-threatening. Hattie Fogel, the woman who had come to Thiokol after working at the shrimp factory, survived the explosion, but she lost her brother and sister-in-law that day. One of her cousins lost an arm. Fogel told The Current in 2021 that she still felt pain from her injuries. For years, she couldn't talk about the explosion without crying. Nancy Guan again. This was a huge tragedy. Everyone in Woodbine was basically touched because everybody knew everybody. You know, children were left orphaned. Families hesitated even to really talk about this because it was so traumatic. Some, of course, were angry, especially when it came to light about three weeks after the explosion that workers should have been told the materials they worked with weren't merely flammable, but were explosive. So they sued launching a 17-year legal battle to figure out who, if anyone, should be held accountable. The news coverage of the Thiokol explosion was devastating. Here's how a UPI wire story began two days after the blast. Quote, It was quiet in the Crooked River Inn. The jukebox stood mute against the wall. A pool table was idle in the middle of the room. Only the soft crying of a grief-stricken mother broke the silence. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Sobbed Mrs. Charles Monak. He was all I had. 
end quote. I think the story got a detail wrong because I found that Charles worked with his wife, not his mother, at the plant. Dorothy Monak was 28 years old to her husband's 30, and his death left her to raise two young children alone. In a tribute to her late husband, written years later, Dorothy recalled that they had left Thiokol a few months earlier when Charles got a job with a railroad. He was content, she said, but Thiokol wanted him back enough to offer him a higher salary and a new position. He wasn't supposed to go to work on February 3rd because the day before he had gotten two teeth extracted and he hadn't slept well. He should have called in sick. Dorothy wrote, quote, But there he was, bright and early, getting dressed. He said he would go in and check on things and come home early, end quote. The two went to work together, and a little after 10.30 a.m., Charles found Dorothy to say he felt bad and was headed home right after he checked one more thing. He gave his wife a kiss on the cheek, then went to help evacuate building M-132 before the explosion, but after the workers started filing outside because they'd spotted a flame. Dorothy was hurt in the blast. As a co-worker helped her crawl into a car to head to a hospital, she spotted a pair of shoes underneath a bus that had been lifted and dropped by the explosion. She recognized the shoes as her husband's. The two were taken to the same hospital, where Charles died that night. Some people asked for compensation to help pay their medical bills and help find them new work. Many said returning to a plant where they'd watch co-workers, friends, and even family blown apart was not in the cards for them. Those who asked for money were generally not treated kindly. That's what prompted the first lawsuit. It was very very contentious. You know, the victims, they were threatened. Some of them didn't, you know, sign on to the lawsuit because they were fearful for their lives. The case dragged on year after year. Georgia workers' compensation laws limited Thiokol's exposure to $17,000 for each person killed and less for those who were injured but survived. Thiokol said it wasn't criminally liable because the company had been just as in the dark about the reclassification of the materials from flammable to explosive as the workers had been. It was the government's fault, they said. The government, meanwhile, is notoriously reticent to accept blame in these types of situations. It wasn't until a seemingly unrelated incident, I remember all too vividly in 1986, that things started falling into place. So the 25th space shuttle mission is now on the way after more delays than NASA cares to count. This morning, it looked as though they were not going to be able to get off. A minute, 15 seconds, velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away from the side of the shuttle in an explosion. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. We're awaiting word. They're holding their breath just, I'm sure, as everyone else is. You saw it just a few moments ago, about 45 seconds after liftoff, a huge fireball in the sky. 
We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are out looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. I remember the Challenger shuttle explosion because it happened while I was in school. My teachers, like a lot of teachers nationwide, had rolled in the TV for us all to watch the launch live because on board was Krista McAuliffe, the first teacher set to go into space. I remember being confused when it exploded, not fully grasping what had happened until long after Mrs. Mann had soberly rolled the cart back out into the hallway. It wasn't until the Challenger explosion that Thiokol was also a part of, where that kind of gave traction to the victims of Thiokol as well to get more compensation. See, after the Woodbine explosion with the lawsuit in limbo, Thiokol had shifted back some of its work to Nassau-related stuff. It had also been acquired by the Morton Salt Company and changed its name to Morton Thiokol, but it was basically the same company overall. Anyhow, this new iteration of Thiokol had built the Challenger rocket booster, and in fact, a few of the company's engineers had initiated a conference call the night before the launch to say, hey, it's going to hit sub-zero temperatures tonight. We shouldn't launch this thing in the morning because we've never tested it in such cold conditions. Those naysayers were overruled. The impact of the Challenger disaster went far beyond the traumatization of hordes of school-aged children, as explained by a video posted by 20th Century Time Machine. The accident of the space shuttle Challenger on January 28th evoked a wave of concern over the future of the U.S. space program. President Reagan demanded an investigation and named an independent commission. The mandate of the commission was to review all the evidence and other aspects of the accident and to develop recommendations for corrective action. Five months later, the panel issued its report documenting its findings. Sure enough, an analysis of the Challenger disaster pointed to a sealant failure in the rocket booster, which was exactly what the Thiokol naysayers had been worried about. But note the time element there. The bulk of the Challenger investigation took five months. On March 8, 1988, the Washington Post reported the details of a settlement that had already been reached with families of four of the seven Challenger astronauts in December of 1986, so within a year of the explosion. Thiokol paid 60% of a $7.7 million settlement in that deal, while the U.S. government paid the remaining 40%. If you're curious, the remaining three families didn't join that initial settlement and one widow filed a suit, but ultimately everyone accepted settlements. The disparity between the swiftness of that case and the feet dragging in the Woodbine plant explosion was not lost on families of the 1971 disaster. The summer after the Challenger disaster, the New York Times wrote a story comparing it with the Woodbine explosion that began... Quote, the disintegration of the space shuttle Challenger last January 28th was not the first catastrophic accident for Morton Thiokol, Inc. On a cold, damp morning 15 years earlier, another disaster, this one called by negligence on the part of both Thiokol and the United States government, left 29 people dead and more than 50 injured in this isolated corner of southeastern Georgia. End quote. 
The story showed that while there were a lot of overlapping elements between the disasters, the differences in the aftermath of each were impossible to ignore. On one hand, you had a high-profile televised explosion that killed six NASA astronauts and one trained civilian, whose families were quickly taken care of by way of multi-million dollar settlements. On the other hand, you had dozens of essentially untrained workers who'd survived the Woodbine explosion, plus the families of 29 casualties, all of whom were lucky if they'd been granted maybe the equivalent of a few years' salary. After they had awarded the damages in the Challenger case, that had given the Woodbine victim lawyers leverage to ask for more for their victims, for their clients. In the end, the government in Thiokol paid out roughly $20 million to survivors. About one quarter of that figure went to lawyers. And that's kind of when the legal battle officially ended. The story wasn't quite over, though. The daughter of one of the survivors of the explosion, she comes back home after leaving home to work for the federal government, actually. And she finds out that not many people know about this tragedy. Um, you know, her nieces, they're watching the TV and they're like, what's what's a vehicle? And then she realizes, wow, you guys don't know this history. You guys don't even know that your relatives were part of this really, really tragic explosion. So that kind of jumpstarts her journey in commemorating this event. And she even finds out, you know, the local historical archives in their like 500 page history of the county. There's like two lines dedicated to that explosion. Janie Everett had been in school when she noticed her classroom shaking at Camden County High School a few miles from the plant. School officials soon announced that the Thiokol plant, where Janie's mother worked, had exploded. Students were sent home early to make sense of what had happened and to help family and friends if they could. Janie's mother survived her injuries that day and even returned to work in the aftermath because she considered it her patriotic duty to help the war effort. In more recent years, Janie set out to establish a memorial and museum, which she did. She really views this as important to memorialize, and that's kind of the ongoing journey that she's doing and we're also a part of now. She wants to get the Congressional Gold Medal for the victims. Janie worked with Nancy Guan and others at the Savannah Morning News, a Gannett publication, to create the podcast Tripwire. It's one of the ways the story of the disaster lives on. Another way is through fancy-sounding mass tort litigation revisions that were enacted in its aftermath to allow many people with similar injuries from the same source to collectively bring their personal injury case against the same defendant while also preserving each plaintiff's unique case and distinct damages. Yes, it's that complicated. This is why I never went to law school. The way other people described the legal ramifications is that tort law was rewritten and that same litigation was used in compensating victims of 9-11. The disaster also helped shape OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which had been signed in late 1970 by President Richard Nixon, but wasn't enacted until spring of 71, with tweaks that had been added because of the Thiokol explosion.
To research this story, I interviewed Nancy Guan of the Savannah Morning News and read contemporary and retrospective news stories. The 2021 piece by The Current was especially helpful, as was the 1988 story I referenced from The New York Times. You can find Guan's podcast, Tripwire, that's one word, wherever you get your podcasts. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>